Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and my guest today is author, journalist, film producer, and podcaster Robert Bryce. Robert is the host of the Power Hungry podcast, and his credits include the documentary Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, as well as books such as Cronies, Pipe Dreams, Gusher of Lies, and his most recent book, which we are discussing today, A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. Robert, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be with you, Chris. So I've listened to a few episodes of Power Hungry, and I'm going to take a page out of your book. And I know over on your show, you have the guests introduce themselves. So besides what I just mentioned, you want to say a little bit about your background, who you are and what your interests are? Happy to do that. That's my trope, I guess. Uh, uh, You know, I've heard a lot of windy uh, introductions. So I just thought, well, you know, I don't want to do that. Here's your basic thing. But uh, so uh, thank you, Chris. I'm Robert Bryce. Um, First things first, I'm a proud dad and a proud husband. Lauren and my wife, Lauren, and I have been together for 40 years, married for 36 and a half. We have three great kids, Mary, Michael, and Jacob. Uh, They're all above average. Um, They're all musicians and uh, darling, and they're healthy, and and they're out of the house. So (laughs) those are all really – the empty nest is a beautiful thing. Um, I'm also an author journalist. I I focus on energy and power systems and uh, consider myself incredibly lucky. I've been very fortunate in my career. I've never had a real job. I've been a reporter my whole life. Um, And uh, I I care about these issues. I'm passionate about them. So how about that? Now let's stop there and get on to talk about the – What's going on? Because there is a boatload, a shitload. Like we can talk about, we can say you that can word say you wrong. can you can swear. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. So, uh, you want to say just how did you get interested in energy in the first place? Sure. Energy and electricity. How did that come to be your specialty? Sure. Well, Tulsa is my hometown, uh, and it's a it's a it's an ener- it's an energy town. For you know, about twenty minutes, it was called the oil capital of the world. Uh, that title is clearly now Houston, Texas. Um, but my dad was in the insurance business, um, it, but he knew a lot of people in the energy business. So from a young age, I was exposed to it. I knew what it was about. And I saw it in the, you know, I would, you know, when I was, I hunted when I was a kid and I'd hunt in the oil field and, you know, I knew what the, what, what was, you know, what it looked like. And so uh, it was, I started in journalism and uh, writing for the Austin Chronicle. I started doing some articles on energy and power and realized, well, this is the world's biggest and most important industry. And so that just continued. And so I've been writing about energy and power systems now for more than 30 years. We can talk about more than the book that I mentioned, A Question of Power. Good. But the topic of this book is also the topic of the documentary Juice. They're, they're companion pieces, correct? That's right. And uh, oh, what I should have in my introduction, I should have said my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com. We're going to sell self-promotion is part of the, the podcast landscape. So if I'm going to have people listen to anything, go to my Substack. I have a new Substack, in fact, out uh, today um, called the Anti-Industry Industry, which is a uh, ex- exposing the reality that the anti-hydrocarbon, anti-nuclear NGOs are outspending the traditional energy sector, that would be the oil and gas and nuclear sectors, coal sector, by more than four to one. And so this- In terms of uh, lobbying we, and advocacy? Lob- lobbying and advocacy. This, you know, this these claims, which are just false, that are repeated over and over in the New York Times, NPR, The New Yorker, Oh, that the renewable industry is backfooted because the Koch brothers or ExxonMobil or, you know, the usual bad bogeymen are somehow preventing progress. It's just wrong. It's not true. It's never been true. And so I put the numbers together. Four and a half billion dollars a year is being spent by uh, the anti-hydrocarbon, what I call the anti-industry industry or the climate aristocracy, Chris Kiefer calls them. Um, to promote these, uh, you know, the, what is really a pretty radical agenda of shutting down the hydrocarbon sector, uh, electrifying everything, trying to ma- force the economy to run solely on renewables. It's a it's a fool's errand and a dangerous one. Um, but I wanted to, uh, you know, get that off my chest because it's something I've been working on very hard for the last few weeks. But as far as the electricity sector, this is one of my main focus, focuses of my work now. And yes, thank you. The, the book that I wrote, A Question of Power, 
um, which I keep at hand, uh, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. It's been out three years. Uh, the paperback version is coming out in May. I've been uh, just was working on the uh, new preface for that. Um, but yes, uh, it, it came out in 2020, and in the in the preceding two to three years, I worked on a documentary called "Juice: How Electricity Explains the World," and I wrote the book at the same time. I don't recommend it. It was in it was a very difficult <laughs> thing to do, but now that they're both done, I can say, yeah, I did it. And so uh, I'm proud of both of them, and both of them are uh, efforts to look at the world through the lens of electricity, which is the world's most important and fastest growing form of energy. What are the most important things accomplished by electricity that a modern person, a modern Westerner takes for granted in their everyday life? Yeah, I, I like that question, Chris. I would say it's the importance of electricity to women and girls. My mother was born in my mother was born in 1925. My grandmother was born in 1894, if memory serves. My grand the, the, the era of electricity is not that old. So in, when my grandmother was born in what was then Oklahoma Territory in the 1890s, electricity was unknown. And there were parts of Oklahoma that weren't electrified until the 1940s after the Rural Electrification Administration and, and the, the New Deal uh, reforms of the 1930s uh, took effect. So this phenomenon of rural electrification in America is relatively new. This is not something that's been here forever and we modern in modern America forget because it's, you, you know, electricity is ubiquitous and, you know, we complain when we have outages and the rest of it. But around the world, there are more than three billion people who live in places where electricity consumption is less than what's used by an average kitchen refrigerator here in the United States. Right. A thousand kilowatt hours per capita per year. There are some more than 70 countries where that amount of electricity is is that's greater than the per capita average in those countries. So. But who benefits the most from electrification? Well, we all do, but women and girls in particular. As I like to say it, Chris, uh, electricity frees women and girls from the pump, the stove, and the wash tub. And this was one of the things that the architects of the New Deal and rural electrification, George Norris, um, uh, Burton Wheeler, um, uh, George, Senator George Norris from Nebraska, Burton Wheeler from Montana, uh, Representative Sam Rayburn before he became Speaker of the House, they knew this, and they knew how important electricity was to rural women. And so that was one of the motivating factors for them in getting that legislation passed in 1935 and 1936 that electrified rural America. So I've given you a long answer, but what we forget and take for granted is if we are serious about reducing rural poverty and bringing uh, women and girls in, in, in developing countries into modernity, we need to give them power. Well, they need the juice. We need to provide more. And I say we, the people, we, they need more electricity because that's the key. What do you think are the, ro the primary roadblocks to people today who are not electrified or who live on, who are energy poor, electricity poor, living on less than the electricity that powers your refrigerator? Well, this is a complex question, Chris, and it's one that goes to the basic uh, civil society. Um, theft is the enemy of light. Yeah, corrupt countries, they don't have electricity because corruption is rampant. And so you can't create an electric grid if theft is an accepted part of the culture. There has to be some, I call it the esprit de grid. There has to be some sensibility about the electricity as a common good and people have to pay for it. You can't just give it away. And if you do, it won't work for very long because it's simply, you can't make the system work if everybody is stealing and nobody's paying. So there are a number of comp of interconnected things. You need you need capital, you need fuel, and you need this uh, integrity. And the integrity is the first one. You need the societal integrity, capital, and fuel. Those are the three prerequisites to uh, effective electrification. And you know, electrification worked here in the U.S. because we had societal integrity and we had fuel, particularly coal in the early days. Now we're running a lot of gas and we're still using a lot of coal. Um, and But if you have capital, then, you know, you have to keep that capital in the grid. The grid, yes, we put fuel in it, but really electricity systems run on money. You go over it in the book, but in the documentary, it's very stark because you see it. You go through and you walk through villages, poor villages, where there are these large hooks that, you know, it's like a big metal hook on a rod that people hang off of or hook into right. the power lines and si siphon off electricity. And it's it's not like analogous to piracy or something like that, where we say what you want about it, you, you're actually just making a copy. You're not actually taking anything physically right. from, from the system. You really are 
taking away the electricity and which requires fuel and all kinds of things to produce. Um, so it's, it's a different kind of thing. It's, it's electronic they're, they're, theft, but it's not, right. it, yeah. that's a good, that's a good way to think about it. They're, you're, they're free riding. Right. And so, and this is one of the things that very clearly you can see in, in Iraq. And so I'll, I'll state the obvious Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. I mean, a really bad guy, but he kept the lights on, right? He, you can look at Iraq prior, prior to Saddam and after Saddam and he, you know, once he came into power, he bolstered the electric grid. The, the electrification of Iraq worked pretty well under Saddam Hussein. Once Saddam was taken out and executed by the Americans and by the, you know, the, the Sadarites in, in uh, Iraq, the whole electric grid in Iraq disintegrated. And it's still in terrible shape today because there's no one enforcing the law, right? You didn't steal under Saddam because that bad, you got discovered bad things that happened, right? So that's a clear example of how societal integrity, whether it's done by a despot or by, you know, democratic systems and, 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 and cops and the rest of it, 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 ultimately the grid doesn't care, right? But it just, it care, the grid, it, it needs that integrity to function well. So uh, I think that that's just an important distinction to make that, despotic regimes and anti-democratic regimes you know saudi arabia the lights stay on right they're not this is a kingdom right but they make sure the 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 grid works because that's part of their social contract right so uh, i just think it's important to understand that that understanding is clear right that that grids are fragile things and they require this uh integrity of the entire system for them to work so you're emphasizing two major roadblocks to electrification that are that are primarily social or legal or political. You're talking about widespread theft from the grid, but also widespread corruption from the, maybe the people running the grid. And just notably, neither of these are are technical roadblocks. Neither of these are technological roadblocks. These right, are soci- these are more about soci- rule of law. They're, soci- they're societal, and 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 they are sometimes driven by extreme poverty. Right, that in in India where you you talked about where we saw the hooking. Right, where. Uh, there were hooks and people were stealing electricity. I mean, these. the one thing people, I've, I've only been to India once, so I'm hardly an expert, but I've been asked, well, what was surprised you in making the documentary and, and when doing the book? And, and my answer is the level of poverty. I was just, I, I didn't understand what it was. I thought I understood poverty and I'd seen poverty here in the United States, but the grinding poverty that I saw in India exceeded anything that I was familiar with. And so if I was living in that situation, would I hook the line and steal power too? Damn right I would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the stakes are amazingly high. It, it's, I think, an experience like that, which I, I haven't had. But I mean, you can you can have it through through reading, through watching documentaries of realizing that as an average person in a Western country, you're phenomenally wealthy yeah. um, relative to most people in history and most people in the world today. Or maybe yeah. not. Yeah, yeah, definitely most people in the world today. Um, so the, these are the big roadblocks. So what would you say about um, the you, you talk a lot in the book about the electrification of rural America? Now, this was done to some extent legislatively and directed by the New Deal, not not exclusively, I think. Um, what do you think was the roadblock for the United States prior to those legislative efforts. I mean, is this something that would have happened anyway, just a little bit later or in a little bit more of a patchy kind of way? Or was this necessary to be done in a kind of a top-down way through the New Deal? Well, that's a good question. And the answer is it was complicated, right? Grids are complex. And what what FDR in 1932, in one of the few presidential speeches that's ever been given about electricity, and he was in Portland, Oregon in 1931, I think late 31, or maybe it was in 32. And he gave a speech that was largely focused on electricity and electrification. Um, and it was about busting the trusts at that time. Um, the There were the big uh, electric holding companies, and they the holding companies controlled vast territories. And one of them was was controlled by uh, Samuel Insel, who's been vilified wrongly in many cases, I think. But nevertheless, if you think about the electric grid, where are the – if you own a grid and you're, an, you're Insel, well – if you live in Chicago, well, sure, let's electrify Chicago. You get lots of people living in a one building or a building right next door. Well, it only takes me a fairly small amount, small amount of wire and poles and transformers and distribution stuff to electrify those two buildings. And there's more buildings right across the street and the rest of it. But when you get out to Alpine, Texas, or you know, or Crawford, Texas, or you know, No Trees, or Goldsmith, out way out in the boondocks. 
Well, you've got to run one line that would go for miles and only serve four, four five, six customers. So the holding companies, the big, the big holding companies at that time, they weren't going to do that because there was no incentive. They would lose money on those customers. So this was something where there was, I don't know if you would call it a market failure. I'm not an economist, but whether they would call it a market failure, but it was the market wasn't going to provide that. The, the regular and conventional capitalist market for around grids and which are natural monopolies, they weren't going to go out and do that. They weren't going to go out and string that wire to those customers in in Goldthwaite or you know wherever you know some small little 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 town out in the boondocks. And so this was what the government then stepped in with the uh, utility uh, uh, Public Utility Holding Company Act of 1935, which busted up the trusts, the, the big holding companies, and the, and the Rural Electrification Act of 1936. Those two things together then broke up the, these, this, these monopolies over these systems, and they also provided capital to rural, uh, r- rural areas where cooperatives could form and say, well, we'll borrow money from the government and then uh, and string the wire or build the power stations or whatever it took to provide that electrification. But uh, I'll just one quick point that I think is really important there to think about. Um, this is several people have written about this. Uh, the uh, In Path to Power, Robert Caro writes about it. When Lyndon Johnson, who's one of my political heroes, right, he was a deeply flawed man, but it, but the, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 64 and 65 were his great redemption. Vietnam was his great sin, but the others were, were things that I think are critically important in American history. But he was also a great advocate for rural electrification. Now, he got to didn't get to Washington until 1937 and after those, these bills were passed. But nevertheless, he was a staunch advocate for this. But it, when when he was in the 30s when when Johnson City where right where he was born there weren't enough people in the Texas Hill Country to get together to form a cooperative it's hard to believe today given how many people live in and around Austin but that time it was very sparsely populated so these cooperatives had to come together and had to you had to have these political entities form and then go to the government to say We'll, we want to borrow money. And in fact, LBJ went to FDR. There's a famous story about this. And I think it was in 1938. He went to FDR and asked a personal favor. Hey, would you guarantee the loan to Pedernales Electric Cooperative? Because and, and they hadn't qualified. They didn't have enough people. And FDR did him a personal favor. They extended the loan to Pedernales. And now today it's the largest electric cooperative in America, 300,000 meters. Can we jump gears a little bit? And sure. can you say something about what the what you call the terawatt challenge? What is the terawatt challenge? So let's start with what, the, what a terawatt is. So kilo, mega, giga, tera, peta, exa, uh, what are the other ones? Uh, Yocto, Yoda. No, it's not Yocto, Yoda. <laughs> it's, that's anyway. higher than anyone so knows. <laughs> a thousand million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. Uh, a terawatt is um, a thousand gigawatts. It's a million megawatts. It's a billion kilowatts. So th- we have in the United States about one terawatt, roughly. It's a little more than that. One terawatt of generation capacity. Right, that's for all of the solar, all the wind, all the nuclear plants in America, about one terawatt. We need, globally, it's about six terawatts, something like, there might be a little more than that now. But there are all these people who are living in dire energy poverty today, and, and electricity demand is growing globally. It's the fastest growing form of energy every, uh, it, it, globally and has been for decades. We're adding roughly new, one new France or one new Brazil, rather, of new demand every year, around five or 600 terawatt hours. Well, we have to keep expanding the global grid. And how are we going to do that? How are we going to bring power to the powerless? And I, my, what I've been saying now for more than 13 years is natural gas to nuclear. If we're serious about decarbonizing, if we're serious about bringing more people out of the dark, what are the ways forward? Renewables can't do it. I'm, I'm, I've been a longtime critic of the renewable industry, proudly so. Uh, I think that what the, you know, it's a subsidy-driven business that will not, cannot survive on its own, despite all the things they claim. If we're serious about re, you know reducing energy poverty, providing more power, we need we need sources of, of of electricity that can be generated on small footprints with low material inputs that are low or no carbon. That's natural gas and nuclear. So um, the challenge, the terawatt challenge, to get back to your question, Chris, is how do we get that? How do we expand the grid? How do we double our electric output? Because it's doubling, has been doubling every twenty years. How are we going to achieve that now? And I think if we're serious about it, we've got to be uh, serious about nuclear energy. So electricity has to be powered by something. It's powered by fuel. And, and you've laid out, uh, you know, your your preference for natural gas and nuclear. You call that end to end. 
What is power density and why is that concept so important and underknown and, and how does it play into the problems with renewables with primarily solar and wind? You're asking all my favorite all my favorite topics here, Chris. Out of boy, I like that. <laughs> power power density is one of my it's one of the most important metrics in physics in in power and energy systems, and very few people understand it. And I didn't understand it. And it's taken me a long while. And frankly, I had to learn, I had to teach myself what it meant. And and I give due credit to uh, Václav Smil and Jesse Osibel, two uh, uh, energy thinkers who I quite admire. Um, and they're, uh, they're helping me or, or really teaching me how to understand it through their books and their writing. What is power density? Power density, well, first, what's the difference between energy and power? Energy is the ability to do work. Power is the rate at which work gets done. We don't care what energy is. We care about what energy does. And energy gives us power. So I could put uh, my typical example. I have a, 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 an 06 Toyota Tundra pickup truck. I could put peanut butter, popcorn, or, or marshmallows, or oatmeal in the tank if I thought when I pressed the accelerator, it would give me the power that I wanted. Right? I don't really care what I put in the tank. I always put gasoline in there because that's what it's designed for. But I don't really care what the form of energy is as long as it gives me that motive power. I don't really care. This light is right here. It's, I don't really care what form of energy is being used to produce the watts that are driving this light. I only care that I have the light. Same with this magnification or the amplification on this microphone. We want power. We don't give a shit about energy. So energy is the ability to do work, right? But we have to make energy flow to produce power. And that's the difference. Uh, energy is denominated in joules. Watt, or power is denominated in watts. Uh, one joule per second equals one watt. Power is a function of time. One joule over a certain amount of time gives you power. So we want power. What we are after is power. So I'm coming back now to this electricity, right? I could this, you know, waving my hand here in front of this light. So if it's from a wind turbine, well, that's fine. If it's from a solar plant, well, that's fine too. But the power density, the amount of land that's needed for a, a nuclear power plant is a thousand times less than what's required by the wind turbine. To and make what the same that, amount of power. That is the power density. So back to power density. It's a measure of energy flow that can be harnessed in a given area of volume or mass. And we care particularly about area. We, want, we don't want to carpet the entire world with wind turbines and solar panels. I don't. I'm adamantly opposed to that. It's terrible. That's anti-environmentalism. And yet that's what we're being sold. Well, that's a bad idea because the lower the power density, when you're starting with corn ethanol <clears throat> or wind, two of the lowest, lowest forms of power uh, uh, production, you have to counteract that with high material inputs. That means you need a lot of fertilizer, copper, concrete, land, steel, all of these things to counteract low power density. So power, low power density is the, the enemy of the environment. We want high power density because that means we need less land. That's one of the many reasons why I'm so pro-nuclear. So power density, in my fourth book, Power Hungry, I lay out the four imperatives and power density is the first one. Power density, energy density, cost, and scale. And power density is first because it is the most important metric. This is basically, you know, how much power we can get out of some unit of input and that, whatever that well, is. Not, what, not some unit of input. Some Well, the inputs will vary depending on the power density. So power density is a measure of energy flow from a given area, volume, or mass. So a volume would be an, an engine, right? You know, an, one of the Model T engines, you can only get like 20 horsepower out of this, okay. you know, this thing, right? But today, a Ford engine or, you know, a modern engine, you get 200 horsepower out of the same volume. Or you could also do it by mass, right? Which would be a similar kind of calculation on that engine, right? But we really care about land use. So that power density and measure of energy flow per unit of area, that's the one we really care about because that then determines those other inputs. Did I, did, is that, did I make that clear? Yeah, yeah. The, the only thing now I'm, I'm a little confused about is what's the difference between power density and energy density or are they sure. synonyms? They're not synonyms. You said they're, they're no, different no. concepts. So power and, uh, power, energy and power are not the same thing. Commonly confused. And and I, I don't want to sound pedantic here, but these things matter. I mean, Get they pedantic. are inc incredibly important. Okay, so... Power density is a measure of energy flow from a given area of volume or mass. That's kind of abstract. Well, here I can hold up this bottle of water, and I know many of you not you're not watching on uh, you're not watching this, you're listening. But I've got a bottle of water in my hand now. Uh, the way easiest way to understand energy density is okay. Well, let me pour the water out, and I'll fill it with sawdust. I've been trimming my trees here. I could gather all the little sawdust from all the trees that I've trimmed, and I could put it in this this bottle. And the energy density of the bottle would be higher, obviously, than if it were empty. 
but it would be nothing compared to if I pour all that sawdust out, sawdust out and fill it with gasoline or diesel fuel. Ooh, suddenly the energy density is far higher. So that is the amount of energy density is the number of joules, the amount of energy that's contained in a given, in this case, a volume or, or a, a mass, right? I could weigh this, right? So if I, the weight of a, a pound of sawdust would still be have less energy density than a pound of gasoline. Uh, and a liter of sawdust would have less energy than a liter of gasoline. So energy density matters, particularly in cars, right? Because we don't want it, the, you know, that's one of the reasons why electric cars are problematic because you got to carry around these very low energy density batteries and they still weigh the same whether they're full or discharged, right? Whereas with gasoline, you know, the, you, you burn the gasoline and the, the tank when it's empty weighs less than when you started. So energy density matters a lot. But power density is the one that matters. I always put it first. And they're, they're interrelated, but they're not the same thing. And nuclear energy is far and away the most, the densest form of energy that we have the access to currently. The most power dense by multiple measures, right? By many multiples. So what are the popular concerns with nuclear energy? Why is it demonized? Why is it not bigger than it is? Why is it stalled so much in the last 50 years? How much time do we have, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is probably the topic that's most interesting to me. So yeah. <laughs> as much as you want. Well, it's complicated and simple. I guess part of the reason, one way to think about it this simple is why has nuclear been demonized so effectively for so many years is because these very uh, large NGOs like this, I don't call them environmental groups. I don't call them green groups because I don't think they're environmentalists and I don't think they're green. And I'm a longtime critic of them, proudly so. I think these these forces are a, a, a sign of decadence in America. And they, the amount of money they're spending on bad energy policy is just stun, stunning how much it is. But they have been very effective. And the nuclear, the Natural Resources Defense Council, one of the worst, absolute worst at this, because they've been demonizing nuclear energy for decades and were part, part and, and complicit and in leading the charge to close the nuclear plant at Indian Point in New York uh, in Buchanan, New York, I think they should be criminally prosecuted for what they did. They're so offensive to me because consumer bills and CO2 emissions rose dramatically after they closed that plant and it wasn't, shouldn't have never been closed. So I'm sorry, I'm getting off, off, to, off topic here, but what have they done? They've, these groups have effectively demonized nuclear energy, conflated it with nuclear weaponry, you know, and instilled fear of radiation, all these things that are, are, you know, easy to do, right? And, oh, with the danger, 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 you know, and, and it's, it's been very destructive. So they are part of the problem. There is no doubt about it. And they are part of it. Some of the blame lies with the nuclear utilities themselves and the nuclear industry. Um, some of it is just that it's natural that the public, I think, and this is, a, you know, I think a fair point as well. The public has a natural fear of radiation because they can't see it, can't feel it, can't touch it, can't smell it. And they don't understand it and they don't understand what dosage is and what, you know, we're hit with radiation all the time. When we go out in the sun, when you get warm, well, that's it, that we're feeling radiation. So there are a number of factors here, Chris, that are at work and all of them play a role. Um, I tend to point, point the finger at these NGOs because I think they are they bear a, a whole lot of responsibility for this. And they could, and if they were serious about carbon emissions, would change their tune and turn around and say, no, we realize now we cannot decarbonize. We cannot meet, we have no chance of meeting our CO2 emissions reduction targets without nuclear, but they won't do it because uh, they're, 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 they're fundraising machines. They're not serious about the environment. Um, but I would also say, and just to be fair, and, or rather to be clear, some of the blame here lies with the Democratic Party. And I say this is not a partisan. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm disgusted. But the Democrats have been anti-nuclear for decades. And this is partly due to their affiliations with some of these uh, these NGOs. You know, there are a number of many factors together why nuclear energy in America has stalled. Now, I'll just add I'll answer a question you haven't asked. Have, are we seeing a, a change now? Is, are, we, are we seeing a, a nuclear renaissance, a nuclear comeback? I think we are. Uh, but what I fear is that nuclear is going to have to succeed overseas, probably in Eastern Europe, before it succeeds back here in the United States. That is, other we're, we're finishing two reactors, Plant Vogel uh, 3 and 4, uh, the reactors 3 and 4 now. Uh, they've been over budget over time, um, dramatically so. And those reactors are, you know, they're going to be finished soon. Um, but the U.S., in terms of new nuclear, is really stuck. You think it's going to need like a, a concrete demonstration of success 
in a place like Eastern Europe, and they have yeah. they have the political motivation to do it, presumably because they're motivated more than ever to not be reliant on Russian energy. Is that the idea? That's one of the reasons, and that's it. And that's clearly one of the catalysts behind this renaissance for nuclear in Eastern Europe. But remember, there's also so there's the gas supply issue from Russia, but also there are carbon taxes that are in place, carbon levies in Europe that are stacked on top of the increased level, uh, price of nat gas. Oh, I see. Um, so those more those so than carbon, in the U.S. Those carbon taxes, uh, the the they call them the carbon fee, or I forgot what the name of it is, a term of art they have for it. Uh, I talked with my friend Mark Nelson from the Radiant Energy Group about this earlier, but he he. Um, spells this out very clearly. And so the climate issues, the greenhouse gas issues in Europe are much more baked into the whole economy than they are in the U.S. Add in a, a natural gas price that in Europe today, I don't know, I didn't check TTF today, I think it's you know 15 or 16, something like that, dollars per million BTUs. That higher price natural gas is the other motivator. So you add those two together, nuclear in Europe is suddenly is economic at these prices for the Europeans. It's difficult here in the U.S. because nat gas is so cheap. So, um, but yes, I think that you add the Russia-Ukraine issue is one of them. It is not the only reason why Europe is a more uh, pro promising place for nuclear, but it is a key one that 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 shutoff of gas being part of that is is clearly a motivator. What do you think about Alex Epstein's claim that despite the promise of nuclear? It may be decades before it's, you know, really doing what it should be doing because it's been virtually criminalized for decades and doesn't have, you know, 100 plus years of industry experience to lean right. on. Well, I have a lot of respect for Alex, and he's done a lot of th good thinking on this and, and been very effective in communicating it. I criminalized, I, I, I wouldn't use that word, um, demonized, um, yes, Um Criminalized. I'm mm, I, 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 I'm with Twain, right? The difference between the right word and the right word and the wrong word is quite quite large. The difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. There are problems that the industry created itself. Mistakes were made in outsourcing supply chain issues, especially for providing you know enriched uranium and giving effectively seeding that to the Russians. Um, we let our, our manufacturing system decay so that we're not you know we don't have that industrial capability. But excuse me, but part of that is also a function of the way the grid in the in the United States works. We're not France, right? We don't have one electricity company in the United States. We have three thousand. So the the French could say we're going to build nuclear because it was a very centralized system, very centralized grid, very centralized in terms of of, of decision making, ownership, et cetera. Here in the United States, you have eight hundred and some odd cooperatives. You have. Oh, gosh, how many uh, public power utilities? Like I live in Austin. It's a publicly owned uh, electric company. You have uh, 180 investor-owned utilities. You have, you know, the, the government-sponsored uh, uh, entities like Tennessee Valley Authority and, and Bonneville Power. We have a very diffuse system of ownership in the, U in the grid in the United States. So it, it, it's not, it, it, given that diffused ownership, it's much harder for uh, us, I'm going to say us, these, you know, all of these utilities to come together and say, we're going to bet $20 billion on a new nuclear power plant, right? There's just not that the decision-making system is much more diffused. And that because of that, the commitment, the willingness to commit to these big projects like Vogel are more difficult. One of the reasons that I, I suspect nuclear is so easily demonized is based on, uh, I think it's called the availability heuristic, this like psychological bias that people have, where if you can readily bring to mind examples of things, you have a tendency to overestimate how common or frequent or important they are. This is the reason, you know, people often might be more worried about terrorism than, say, ordinary crime, because you can easily think of big, scary examples of terrorism. Um, right. Crime is just this pervasive thing, you know, whereas like terrorism deaths are a tiny fraction of, of regular murder deaths. So that's, right. the, that's the bigger, scarier problem. But you can bring to mind a terrorist example in your head. Well, it's the same thing. I think the number of things that have gone wrong, say, with coal or coal mining accidents or people who have died. This is just kind of background statistics that no one knows about. But you can bring to, to mind like the exactly three important nuclear disasters that have ever happened. And if yeah. you tell people that nuclear is a good idea, they say, well, what about Fukushima? What about Three Mile Island? Sure. Checkmate. I and thought right. about it. And, and, they're, and, they're, and those, those events, rare though they are, it, you know, reinforce that fear cycle, right? And yeah. 
this is one of the things I point out in my piece and and on my uh, Substack piece, robertbryce.substack.com. Um, <laughs> we'll be linked to in the show notes. <laughs> thank you. The in this anti-industry industry piece that I wrote was that when you compare the battlefield, right, and it is a battlefield of ideas. The anti-hydrocarbon, anti-nuclear NGOs have a natural advantage over the traditional energy providers. And by traditional, I mean hydrocarbons and nuclear, right? In that, what are they What are they doing? They're constantly talking about fear. Fear of climate change, fear of fracking, fear of radiation. And they beat the shit out of those issues, right? Oh, whoa, you, climate change, climate change, got to go to renewables, right? Radiation, fear, radiation, fear, 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 fracking, right? Oh, they're going to poison your water. Therefore, you can't have hydraulic fracturing. So they have, and, and, and we as humans, this is kind of natural. If something is scary, oh, well, we're going to get concerned about that. It's, I mean, that old, that old trope, no politician ever got elected by saying things are going to be fine. Right? You, know, you gotta, you gotta say, no, that guy, that gal, she is gonna mess it up. And if she gets in, you're gonna be in the street, you know, everything's gonna be terrible. I'm gonna save you from that, right? And so that fear is a very big part of this, uh, this challenge in changing the narrative, changing the story around nuclear and getting more momentum for nuclear energy. Um, in Europe, I think they're a little bit ahead because the economic drivers are so strong. And I think most encouraging, perhaps, is what's happening in Japan, because in Japan, they are making a big return to nuclear. And uh, as I've thought about it, I'm, making, I'm working on another documentary. Um, if, Japan, if Japan can go back to nuclear, they can show the rest of the world that it can be done. The rest of the world can do it, too. And they presumably pulled back after Fukushima. And what's yeah. the current motivation? Is, is it related well, I think to Russia it's, as well? It's that the Japanese government has realized we cannot, you know, Japan is a very densely populated country. I've only been there once. I'm going back, in fact, uh, next week. I'm really excited about it. Very densely populated country. And a lot of it's cold. And they don't have a lot of room for more renewables. I think they're just looking around and saying, you know what? We don't have a choice. We have got to restart these reactors. Yeah, Fukushima, okay, yeah, whatever. But they're going to restart their reactors. They're going to run them longer, and they are going to build more reactors. The government has just recently made that clear. So I think this is just practical politics. And for people who don't know, how many people died in Fukushima? From radiation, zero. This is, there were this two people at the plant people. who died, they drowned. Um, and this is one of the things that is so important and that, that, in fact, the fear of radiation around nuclear and, and the evacuation of Fukushima was more problematic than anything having to do with the radiation. Yeah, and traffic been, accidents, things like that. Well, and people being displaced concerns. and pulled out of their homes and then, you know, the, the stress and the frustration and, the, and all of the health issues that came with that, that was more problematic than anything that would have been caused by the radiation. And I think the, the public health surveys have shown this very clearly. And newer plants or newer models for plants have significantly lower risks of meltdown, correct? You're talking about the nuclear plants. That is the, that's the objective, to have them be passively safe. That they, if you walk away safe is the, the, one of the terms that they like to use. One of the problems with Fukushima was that you had to have these circulation, these water circulation pumps always you know, circulating water through the, the reactor core. And once the tsunami hit, it took out the, the, the grid power, but it also took out the, the standby generators. So once that, that, that system of power or water circulation stopped, the reactor overheated and, we, as we know, then exploded. So the idea next is that for these new small modular reactors, they'll be smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper. There's the title of my fifth book. Then than they are now, right? That they can be use molten salt or other things in that you can uh, want if there is a is a problem that they simply shut down and then and and there is no need to worry about them overheating and having any kind of uh, catastrophic failure. So there was only the only ability to cool down the Fukushima plant was if it had active power. And you're talking about a system that if it shut down, if everything was shut down, it would just shut down on its own. And you wouldn't lose this cooling system that was needed to keep it from melting down, essentially. Right. Well, and this is one of the key things. Remember, Chris, we're, you know, we're going to bring this back to the present is, is an issue at Zaporizhia, the nuclear power plant in Ukraine, which has now been claimed by the Russian government uh, for its own. It's the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. I think it's six gigawatts. It's a very large plant. 
Um, and it's been shelled many times. They've had the power supply shut off. They've had to fire up the on-site generators to make sure that they have on-site power. Um, the system, the, the plant is in safe shutdown mode now. But you need power at these plants. You need the lights. You need the workers. They have to be, you know, they got to, you know, the, the, you have to. One of the things about power plants is you can't turn the power off the power plant. So, um, you know, these are things around the design that have to be paid attention to. They need attention. And this new breed of reactors is very promising. I think what to me is the, the, the really interesting part of where we are now is which company and which countries are going to be the ones that prevail. I'm, I tend to think Rolls Royce is going to have an inside track, particularly in Britain. Now, will, are they the, would I bet on them? No, but uh, the, here's an, an old line industrial company has very close ties to the British government. Britain is perhaps more screwed than any other country in Europe. Um, and so there's a lot of motivation in Britain to get new nuclear built and do it quickly besides Hinkley Point C, which is the big, big reactor project that's owned by the Electricity de France. And uh, oh, I, I don't know if the Chinese are still involved in that or whatever, but I, you know, but that's a, that's a mega plant, right? Well, they're, they're also looking at Rolls-Royce to say, let's build some SMRs. And I think Rolls, their project is 300 megawatts, 400 megawatts, not exactly small, uh, three or 400 megawatts electric, but uh, still um, perhaps could be built and deployed uh, more quickly than, you know, one of these large reactors. The Rolls-Royce is not just a, a car company. Okay, now remember, the Rolls-Royce, the car company, is now owned by BMW. We're talking about Rolls-Royce, the jet engine maker, and the other big, it's a big industrial company, right? So they split, right? This is, there's, there are two companies, well, I guess there are three now. So there's Rolls-Royce PLC, I think there's Rolls-Royce, the auto company, which is part of BMW, and there is Rolls-Royce SMR. I don't, I don't and I, they, they call Rolls-Royce SMR a separate company, but I think it's still owned by... Rolls-Royce, the, uh, the industrial company, but, uh, uh, yeah, the, it gets complicated, but I, I, I need to refresh my own memory about this. <laughs> I have no memory to refresh to speak of. This is not something <laughs> I ever knew. Right. So that's Rolls-Royce motor cars as uh, Rolls-Royce, Rolls-Royce motorcars.com. And then you have Rolls-Royce, which is the company that does aerospace defense power systems, um, so different company, Rolls-Royce PLC, right? Rolls-Royce PLC is definitely, they are, I, I wrote a piece about this in Forbes not too long ago that, uh, yes, in fact, that is the case. They are, they are uh, moving full bore straight ahead on uh, deploying an SMR and uh, they've, uh, they have things that are out to bid. And, and so, yes, this is going forward very definitely. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman. Just want to take a quick break to tell you all, I appreciate you so much for listening to the show. And it's still a new show, still a growing show. And if you want to help me out, I would greatly appreciate it. Simplest thing you could do is recommend it to a friend and give it a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Their algorithms rank the shows higher, make it more visible, make it more searchable if it has more star ratings, more reviews. So anything like that would be very, very helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate you all. Back to the show. You say some more about nuclear safety for for people who have maybe the wrong idea about how safe, how dangerous, what the risks are, specifically with regard to radiation and nuclear waste. What you said, the fears of radiation are, are overblown. What are the genuine risks? The genuine risks are if you have exposure to very high levels of radiation for a long time, you can suffer serious health consequences. But this is the problem. Here it is. Yes, BMW Group owns Rolls-Royce. I think they were taken over in 1998. This has been done this a long time ago now. They're still produced in Britain, but owned by the Germans. We figured it um, out. But as far as radiation, you know, the one of the best movies, the best best things I've ever seen that explains radiation and the over the overblown fears of it is uh, Robert Stone's book, uh, Pandora's Promise. And he goes to Fukushima and he goes to Chernobyl and he takes a... a, 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 a a dosimeter and he stands in front in all of these like locations he goes and stands in front of the camera with the dosimeter i don't think it's a geiger counter but he shows that the number of millisieverts in each location and then he goes to a beach in brazil and shows that the level of radiation there it was higher than what he saw in chernobyl and fukushima <laughs> so you know we have to the, the 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 key on understanding radiation is compared to what you know how many how much radiation are we getting and how much is dangerous that's the key you know as i said before radiation you don't feel it you don't smell it you don't touch it taste it 
it's hard to know, right? You don't know how much you're getting. So people just have a natural fear of it because it's the bogeyman. So is this going to be easy to, to change people's minds? Chris, no, I don't think it's not going to be easy. Um, but you know what, what we, it is imperative that we change our, and I'm using the, the broad hour here, but what is broad is critically important that we educate the general public and, and change the culture around this because we have to put that, that radiation risk into perspective. Otherwise, we have no hope of, of making significant progress on decarbonization. Now, what about nuclear waste? Not a problem. Go it on. Is a politi- it is a political problem, not a scientific problem. No one has ever been killed by or, you know, harmed by nuclear waste. I've, I've stood next to these big, you know, dry casks at Indian Point. They're these massive structures, you know, massive big spools of concrete and steel. You can't walk away with one of these. You know, you have to have a massive, tra- you know, this like a tank to even move the damn things. But yet then again, this has been one of the very effective tropes that the anti-nuclear NGOs have used to prevent the the use of nuclear energy. Oh, we don't have a, we don't have a solution for the waste. There's a the problem is we don't have the political will to do to deal with the waste. The French manage their nuclear waste just fine. So do the Japanese. If they can do it, we can do it. But we don't have the political will. And one of the reasons why Obama got elected was it before when he was running, he went to Harry Reid. Harry Reid said, "I'll back you, but you have to tell you have to abandon Yucca Mountain." Obama said, "Deal." So Obama gets in office. What does he do? What are the first thing? Kills kills Yucca Mountain. So. We don't have a federal repository for the waste, so we have this kind of stasis now, this kind of you know stupid gridlock in Washington for now for more than forty years, despite the federal government saying we'll take the you know under the Nuclear Waste Policy Act of nineteen eighty something or other, we'll take all that waste, we'll manage it. They haven't, and so we you know we're kind of stuck on this, but it's the the we are stuck because of a lack of political courage. Uh, a lack of political will in Washington. It's something nobody wants to talk about. We'll we'll punt that until next time because it's kind of a hard problem to solve. And so it doesn't get solved. How is it being managed currently? The spent fuel is being stored on site at these nuclear plants. And it's just in gi- gigantic concrete drums, essentially. That's right. Yeah. Dry cask storage is the uh, is the term of art. And is that is that a safety concern? no. It's not, not, not for like being I, stolen, but like, I, I know that it's not, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you, I don't know how much dynamite you would need to go over next to one of these and try and blow one up. And I don't even think you could do, you know, you could harm it if you did that. I mean, because it's so heavy. And so, and the radiation levels fall very quickly. So, you know, it's just, it is one of the other, these other obstacles. Oh, we don't have, we can't solve the waste problem. Therefore, we can't build any more reactors. Well, uh, that is convenient if you only want to build uh, you know, uh, renewables. But if we want to be serious about moving forward and increasing electricity supplies, decreasing emissions, there's only one way to do it at scale, and that's with nuclear power. And so I've been, I'm kind of an absolutist on this. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely end to end natural gas. Uh, that is the way to get us to the nuclear future. And there's a lot of gas in the world, and we're going to be using a lot of gas for a very long time. We're also going to be using a lot of coal and a lot of oil. But I think we, you know, I'm adamantly pro-nuclear and I can say I'm adamantly pro-nuclear and you don't have to be pro-nuclear and care about climate change. You can just say, yeah, I mean, we need nuclear regardless of what you think about climate change. That's always struck me as as an odd thing that there is this disconnect between people who ostensibly care a lot about climate change and carbon in the atmosphere and are anti-nuclear explicitly or implicitly just just by disposition. Sometimes it seems like not not through any explicit beliefs. Yeah. It just well, feels and, and like the anti-natural the, and, thing. Yeah, it is. And, and my, my, my take on that is very clear. If you're anti-nuclear and anti-carbon dioxide, you're pro-blackout. Well, I'm anti-blackout. I'm adamantly anti-blackout. I got blacked out two years ago in, in this here in Austin. And we need an overhaul on, on our thinking about nuclear. And But there are many impediments. And these, these anti-nuclear NGOs are one of the biggest ones. It's one of the reasons why I wrote this piece, The Anti-Industry Industry, on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com. <laughs> Sign up. Find it on the show notes. <laughs> and what about concerns about the how long nuclear waste lasts? Again, I, you know, the radiation, the levels of radiation fall very quickly on on these used nuclear uh, nuclear fuel rods, and also remember that these these this use this used fuel can be recycled. Can that be was my reused. next question. And this is something why one reason why I'm excited to go to Japan is the Japanese are doing that. They're reprocessing their waste, their 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 used fuel, and and putting into new 
uh, into new re- into new fuel systems, new rods. It's called MOX. This is doable, but you have to have the political will to do it. And this is something the U.S. now, because we are very partisan and very split politically, that is very hard to do. And then further, the amount I've heard you mention this, I've heard Michael Schellenberger, Alex Epstein br- bring up the, the total amount of nuclear waste is not as much as people might think, and it pales in comparison to the amount of waste produced by other forms of energy. You could fit all the nuclear waste ever created on a on a football field stacked, what, 10 meters high? What's what's the figure? Something like that. One, one, one soccer pitch, you know, three or four meters high, something like that. This is not a huge amount of, of, of stuff. Um, and yet we've been conditioned to fear it and to, you know, think that this is a big problem. Well, no. And, and Schellenberger makes a really good point that he said nuclear energy is the only form of power generation that contains its own waste. And it is just, you know, once he said it, I thought, it's really pretty profound, right? You know, when you burn uh, coal or oil or natural gas, of course, you send CO2 into the atmosphere. If you have solar or wind, okay, you're not producing any waste right when you're, you're, you're producing power. But when they wear out, you got to take that stuff and put it somewhere else, right? you got to put it in the landfill and then build another thing. Nuclear reactors can last for 100 years. You can, you know, they, they last generations. And so, and the, and the waste fuel that they produce, it's right there. You don't know, it doesn't have to go somewhere else. It's right on the same spot where you used it to in the first place. And, and, and then if you're serious and want to, you know, wring more energy out of it, you can reprocess it and do it again. So, but this requires significant political will. And I, I don't want to downplay that. I don't want to say this is not important. It is. It's incredibly important. But we have to be realistic about this. We need sobriety when we think about these issues. And, and um, we're just kind of at the moment, and I'll say this about the Biden administration, they're drunk. I mean, that you know, when it comes to energy policy and understanding how serious our, and, and how seriously we need to be taking our energy and power systems, they are not sober at all. They, they're drinking this Kool-Aid on uh, the renewables and, the, you know, we're going to cover the world with renewable energy. And we're going to double the size of the grid. The hell you are. It's not going to happen. And, and yet we don't have any, uh, I'll put it this way, energy realism is energy humanism, Chris. We need energy realism because energy realism is energy humanism. We need that and, and we need a lot of it. And we, we have very little of it in Washington. Can you contextualize the claims that people make sometimes that solar and wind are actually cheaper forms of energy than fossil fuels and other things? I hear this sometimes and I hear uh, people like you and other people in, I don't know what you call the energy humanist movement, say this is nonsense. Can you can you make this make sense to me? Like, are people just lying? Are they being optimistic? What's going on here? Well, cost is not the same as value. You know, this is one of the things that you have to understand. Oh, well, levelized cost of energy. Okay, so they're taking a snapshot in time of saying at this point, the, the amount of uh, the watt hour produced by this solar panel or this wind turbine is the cheapest on the, the, the dispatch curve. Okay, that's fine. But what about when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining? Oh, okay. Let me, here's one of the best examples. And I thought about this in terms of taxis, but I, I, a guy that I have, have had on my podcast, Brett Randall, we haven't aired the episode yet, but he calls it random Uber. Okay. So, it, and this goes to the heart of the, the, the understanding or misunderstanding about electricity. Electricity is a service. It's not a commodity. It's a service and you can't let it fail, right? We think about it as a commodity. Oh, it's a watt hour. Well, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I, I need Watts. I don't, watt hours. I don't really think about it. So, Start there. Electricity is a service. Uber is a service. Okay. So um, you, if I need to go downtown and I need to be there in 20 minutes, okay, so I'm going to call up an Uber and they're going to be here in five and it's going to take me five to get downtown. The service worked for me. But imagine that in when you call the Uber that they say, well, we can't take you now. You've got, because our Uber is down, our Uber, our, none of our drivers are available. We can take you in three hours. Well, I don't, I, I can't go in three hours. My meeting is in 20 minutes. I need to go now. So you, in addition to that Uber, that random Uber, you need a reliable Uber who can take you in the next 20 minutes. So not with random Uber, solar and wind or random Uber that you have to have two Ubers. You have to have a one that's reliable that, you know, it's a Toyota Camry. And when you start it up, it's going to take you downtown. But you've got this other one you have to pay for, too. 
So I think that 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 putting it in in terms of a service that you has to be reliable puts it in context. So oh well, the random Uber is cheaper. Well, it's ran it's it's cheaper if it's available, but if it's not, then it's a lot more expensive. Maybe one way of putting that. It's like you have the random Uber, but you also have to own your own car just on standby. Yeah. It's like having the fossil fuel backup constantly for when the wind's not blowing. Well, and that's another way to think about it, right? Because, uh, you know, my wife and I, well, frankly, our cars are old. We have three of them. (laughs) We have a truck, we have a sedan, and we have a forerunner. Well, a few weeks ago, only one of them was working. One was in the shop, the battery went bad on the other one. So, but I'm saying that because it popped in my head, but right. So uh, the random Uber, oh, well, it can't take me. Well, then I have to drive myself. Okay, well, I'm going to drive myself downtown, but it cost me $30 to park downtown. I mean, you know, it's in Austin, right? You know, the downtown parking is scarce. It's expensive. I might be able to find a place on the street, but if I had to park in a garage, it's going to cost me a lot more than if I'd just taken that Uber and it cost me 10 bucks, right? Instead, I'm going to have to pay to drive myself and it's going to have to pay for parking and it's going to cost more than if I'd just taken the Uber in the first place. So the disconnect here is calculating the the cost of solar power, for instance, only in an isolated circumstance in the best of circumstances. And what you should really be doing is comparing the overall cost and value of a system, of one system versus another system. I think that's a fair way to put it, yeah. But you, you have to calculate in the cost of the dispatchable generation that has to be there in addition to the solar and wind. I mean, this is the causing all the conniptions here in Texas because we have this energy-only market. And so the generators are able to, you know, some of them are making money, some of them aren't. I mean, it's a very difficult system to administer. Um, but yeah, but this is part of the, you know, the broader challenge and the broader um, issues on the electric grid and how we have to think about it for the future. And we, I think the key is to think about it as a service. And we need active government and responsible government to make sure that the system is affordable, reliable, and resilient. And right now, we don't have that because no one is responsible. This is not something that I've ever followed much at all, but do you have any thoughts or hopes about fusion power? Well, sure. I mean, it sounds cool and, you know, it could be cool, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old this year. I'm going to turn 63 in July. I've heard about <laughs> fusion since I was a kid. It was always, it's 20, always years been, away, th- yeah. <laughs> 20 years away, 30 years away. I think fusion is, you know, okay, well, it's, it's, it's awesome. That's great if it works. And, but there are a lot of technical challenges around the, you know, the amount of the flux, the radiation, the, you know, the temperatures, how are you going to manage this? You know, the, the, what they announced is important, you know, a few weeks ago where they said, well, we had a sustained reaction for, you know, six milliseconds. Okay, fine. Fission works. Let's focus on fission. Let's make that work. Let's scale that up. And, now, I'm, I'm not saying let's not work, let's not invest in fusion. There's a lot of investment happening in fusion, but you know the 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 hype around that announcement a few weeks ago, I thought was just ridiculous. I mean, just, come on, you know, sober up here, folks. And you know the the lag time between a workable prototype and actual you know penetration in the market and, and affecting ordinary people could be decades long, as well. And we're long, we're not even time. at like a practical prototype. So yeah, um, that's kind of what I thought you'd say. Are you working on any upcoming projects at the moment you want to you want to plug? You mentioned sure. a documentary. Well, um, of course, you know, I'm doing the Power Hungry podcast every every week. I'm I'm on TikTok now. I'm uh, doing uh, TikTok videos. I'm doing uh, tick, uh, putting them on Twitter. I'm at on Twitter PWR Hungry Power Hungry on Twitter. I'm working on a new documentary called Burning Down the Grid with my colleague Tyson Culver. We're hoping to have that finished by the middle of the year. Um, I'm on Substack, robertbryce.substack.com. Um and yeah, I'm, I'm, look, I'm having fun, Chris. I'm, I'm producing a ton of content. I'm working all the, you know, not all the time. I'm working a lot, but you know, I'm, as I said at the beginning, I'm a very lucky man. I'm, you know, I've got a beautiful family, a beautiful wife, you know, and passionate about these energy and power issues. And I'm, I hope that I can contribute positively in the, in the discussion to increase uh, literacy and, and numeracy in, in energy and power, because these are the challenges that we face. Do you have any recommendations for a book or an author that would complement your work especially well? Well, sure. Well, buy my books first. You don't have to read them. You just have to buy them. Buy all of Robert's (laughs) books first. (laughs) Um, Buy them on your Kindle and make a better royalty. Um, I'm a big fan of Václav Smil. He's not the most graceful writer, but he's incredibly prolific and has written a number of books that have had a great influence on me. His book... um, Inventing the 20th Century is one of my favorites. Uh, that book is, I think, is, is a marvel. 
Um, his, he's, he has a new book out that's gotten a lot of good press called uh, how, how the World Really Works, I think. Um, so Václav Smil is really quite good. Um, I really like the work of Jesse Ausubel. He's been a big influence on me. Uh, A-U-S-U-B-E-L, Jesse Ausubel at Rockefeller University. His, his essay, uh, Nuclear Heresies, uh, changed the course of my career. And uh, he's been nothing but gracious to me. And so I'm a big, uh, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to count Jesse as a friend and a mentor. A mentor. And uh, so, yeah, Smil and Ausubel, I think they, I think they hung the moon. So, um, you know, how about those two? Beautiful. My guest today has been Robert Bryce. Please check him out over at the Power Hungry podcast. And his book, once again, is A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. Robert, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Awesome to be with you, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.